Welcome to Tall Poppy. Carmel Guerrera is a founding CEO in an organization serving the needs of migrant and refugee young people in what is now a very multicultural Australia. But it hasn't always been this way. She shares with us what it was like in the early days advocating for things like culturally appropriate food for unaccompanied minors coming from Cambodia, Laos and Vietnam. She's a big dreamer and she's realized a vision of a national organization in her sector while retaining state autonomy and ownership. Efforts by CMY and their allies have made a significant contribution to the experience of client groups like young refugees and youth in police custody as a result of advocacy. Today, she's no longer the only person at meetings raising issues of migrant and refugee young people. And she recently returned from a leadership program at Harvard Business School, where she did some deep reflection on her role and impact on the organization she leads. On her return, she engaged in organizational well-being initiatives such as CEO conversations and a culture survey. Welcome, Carmel. Hi, nice to be here. So, um, I was inspired by hearing about you talk about organizational well-being. And I'd love to talk about that, but I, I, I wonder if we could just take a step back and talk about what is the Center for Multicultural Youth and, and why you started it. Yeah, sure. The Center for Multicultural Youth is Victorian-based. It started over 25 years ago and really came out of a dream and a vision that a number of us had who were youth workers in, in Victoria going through the courses in the 80s and looking around and seeing that the service system we wanted to enter didn't look like ourselves. So we went about creating a support structure network for ourselves that then we realised we wanted to turn into something else. So from that we put a proposal to government around wanting to fund this network to be more than just a network but to be engaged in social change around the service system for refugee and migrant kids living in Melbourne at the time. So that's how it started and um, I went overseas, travelled for a while and discovered myself as a child of migrants in the kind of 80s and then um, came back and this job was there and I got it and so I've been here ever since. Mm, fantastic. Yeah. Um, and. I remember hearing you talk about a decision that you made in the early days around structure and can you talk about some of the choices you made that were perhaps a, dif a bit different than some of the other organizations? Like I think you said you, you, didn't, you weren't going to be a membership-based organization and w why was that important? Well, we started as a network, so we you know, started from what was very kind of you know, sexy in the 80s and 90s <laughs> and anyone who worked in the kind of community sector in Australia would know that that working in a collective model was the way forward. Certainly it didn't always sit very comfortably with me around wanting to um, drive change, that I always had a strong feeling and some of the people I worked with that you needed to be collective around your vision but that you needed someone to drive you know, concept with it. So at that time we very much felt that we wanted to be a structure that in some way was representative, consultative, with who you know the young people and communities we were working with, but that if there was a vision, we all agreed in that some of us would have to take that vision forward because mm -hmm. there needs to be risks and there needs to be decisions made and collective structures. Mm -hmm. I didn't think always led to wise decisions that made everyone feel good, but didn't actually mean that someone had the courage to do what they thought was right, which mm -hmm. is what I think leaders have to do. You have to do what's right rather than maybe what everyone thinks you should be doing. Mm, excellent. Um, and I'd love to hear a bit about some of the. Uh, 
the impact that you've seen. Uh, and I remember you talking about, you know, really simple things like what kind of food was in the cupboard, um, and, and that being sort of culturally appropriate, and and what how, what it was like then, and what it's like now, and the, the impact this organisation has had. Can you say a little bit about what you've seen? Yeah. And it's very nice of you to to, to say that this organisation has had all that impact. I think that we've probably led some of that, but absolutely we've done it in collaboration and partnership with others. Because if we hadn't, the change wouldn't have occurred. One organisation can't yeah. do that, and not that I think you were suggesting that I was responsible. But I wanted to frame that because mm. I think it's a really important differentiation to make about um, leadership and that if you lead though, if people aren't following and doing things behind you, you're mm -hmm. not really making change. Yeah. So, yeah, so I think one of the um, really important things we did in the um, 90s was around responding to the large numbers of unaccompanied minors that were coming from Southeast Asia, Cambodia, Laos and Vietnam. And at the time, there was a really high degree of homelessness and drug taking. So a lot of these young people were moving into homelessness services. So we um, secured some funding from the Maya Foundation, actually, really early on to kind of document this issue because it wasn't documented. Mm -hmm. And we very much, I think, coined the term Cambodian, Laos, Vietnamese rather than Southeast Asian or Asian. Okay. So we consulted with the community and they mm. said that you know, it doesn't make sense. It's like calling, you know, Sudanese, Somali, Ghanaese, African, or calling right. Italian, Greek, Polish, European. Mm. You know, I mean, that's simplified, but that yep. was the notion. Yep. So we very actively then said, okay, we will talk about Cambodian, Laos, Vietnamese, and we went alphabetical. Okay. So we consulted that. So mm -hmm. from that led some work from the community and some of the young people telling us that when they were going into refugees, and I know this sounds really strange 25 years later, but that's where we were at in the 90s, that they were going to refugees and there was no rice. Mm -hmm. So we did really basic training like to those services and say, are you reflecting on simple things like what food are you feeding mm -hmm. the young people rather than sausages and mash, which is what was going on. Yeah. Hard to imagine now because Australia is so multicultural and mm -hmm. Asian food is now part of our culinary diet, but you can think of the kind of mid-90s, 20 years ago, that was not the case. So yeah, so that's just a small mm. indication, but there have been lots of those things that have mm. changed that I say to so many of the staff we employ now when people are frustrated and feel like nothing's moving, that, you know, it's only through age and wisdom that you look back and go, look, look how much it's shifted and yeah. that there is more to be done, but we should never feel defeated or that you can't change because we've seen that it's you know, I've seen in my time here, which is now over 25 years, how, how things have substantially changed. Mm -hmm. and, and tell me a little bit more about um, perhaps some of the, the policy changes that you've seen um, that you've been, you know, that you've been pushing for that um, would perhaps reflect the, the work that, that has been done by um, both CMY as well as other groups in the sector. Yeah. Um, I think the most fundamental change, again, that I talk about quite a lot is that now, I'm not the only one ever going to a meeting who's saying what about refugee, migrant or multicultural youth. So I think that's a big tick mm -hmm. that I don't have to be at meetings and when I go to meetings and I don't have to say anything about it, I feel like that's a great success because I can go on to bigger things. So I think to me that's the bigger thing. That Not that it's hit the mainstream but I think because we are such a culturally diverse community in Melbourne particularly. Mm -hmm. because we're also socially progressive compared to many other states because I yeah. do a lot of work nationally because I chair the national body which I can maybe talk about later because mm -hmm. that was one of those things where I had a dream we shared it and now we wanted to do it nationally but okay. is that in Victoria I think there is a real commitment to acknowledging that diversity is a strength so that there's been a real 
shift there in terms of saying this is not a marginal issue now, these, these young people make up a significant proportion of our community so we need to reflect on them. So to me that's the really biggest shift that's mm. happened that this issue is now talked about and we have a lot of people in a lot of different organisations and meetings I go to, you know, Vic Police, a whole lot of people now kind of really reflecting on responding to the diversity of their community that they live in, which was not happening 20 years ago. Fantastic. There is no way. We were like a sole voice. So can you say a little bit more about what you mean by diversity as a strength? Because it's something you hear a fair bit yeah. these days, but what does that mean to you? I think, look, what it means to me, and it has always meant it to me from when I was at uni, like I went and did the youth work course when there was only, what, 70, 80 students, there were five of us who were of what we used to call ourselves non-English speaking background at the time. So I knew from then that um, the world that, you know, I was entering at that time did not look like me, right? I knew it at high school, even though I went to a very multicultural school, mm -hmm. I knew and understood Sorry, no, I didn't understand and I and university helped me understand power structure, inequality, right? You know, kind yeah. of, you know, think yeah. you know, like my, my background was growing up, Italian family, very, you know, hard working, poorly educated, didn't learn I I didn't know English till I went to school, never seen an English book. So we frame that to opposed to what young people coming into Australia now. Mm -hmm. For me, I kind of looked around going, we are we are really diverse, but the um, diversity I bring or others bring is, is not seen as a strength. So for me, it, was re it has been about reframing that and seeing that everyone who enters Australia because we're a country of migrants brings with them something that they want to share because we cannot assume that everything that exists in Australia is... Um, or that it's valued, that really diversity brings that strength with it. New, you know, new new ideas, skills, challenges, ways of thinking. Um, you know, food is really superficial and, you know, I don't like getting hooked up on that because I think we've had too long in the whole 70s, 80s business of, you know, integration was based on food's okay, but no, we actually don't want someone who looks different to me to ever be in a position of power. I, you know, but I think mm -hmm. food has been a powerful and it's a safe way to start and my argument has always been that you don't want to leave it at food but that kind of diversity has introduced people to actually if you can try something that's different in food what does that mean about language, what does it mean about religion, what does it mean about problem solving differently, you know, collective models versus individual kind of concepts, you know, the whole concept now that's used to take the village to raise a child, now that didn't come from a western nuclear family model, it's yeah. come from a whole, so I think a lot of those <laughs> things being introduced into Australia have demonstrated that um, a culturally, linguistically, spiritually, religiously diverse community has a whole lot of strength to it. Mm, great. So let's talk a little bit about um, Australia and the national scene in terms of what you were referring to before with the um, national network. Yes. Um, and then we'll talk about organisational lobbying experience. Yeah. So if we start from this whole thing, um, and I'm a big dreamer, that's part of my kind of innate, and I think from, you know, what I've learned about leadership and social action and change it if you know dreamers are the people who make change so that was really good because I mean I think in my early days because I you know came in this job as a 25 year old kind of having this dream and then having to work out Jesus now how do I make it happen was really challenging mm -hmm. and then what I learned and that's where Harvard was great for me because I got an not-for-profit fellowship last year was to really have a week you know in the most 
you know, um, invigorating, stimulating academic intellectual environment you could be with, with um, not-for-profits to spend some time reflecting on your own leadership style and what it means within a not-for-profit sector. So I got some time to really do some thinking and writing about or understanding my role and what I've done and then trying to think through, well, it makes perfect sense why I've done what I've done. I put it into some context. Yeah. That was really kind of useful mm. for me because I'm generally not, not very academically inclined. I'm intuitively inclined and then trying to make sense of the world. Right. That way, so yeah. that, that was really helpful. So really, what I realised then that through the Maya and what I was doing was sharing the dream. Can you say what Maya is? The Multicultural Youth Advocacy Network. That's, that's an Australian or that's right, a national body. Yes. Okay. So so what we've done is set up a national body to represent the views of refugee migrant young people nationally. Fantastic. Because. Victoria was the only organisation of its kind. Then we've mentored, and there's a great sister organisation in South Australia that we help mentor, and there's an organisation in ACT. But we've spent the last five years through advocating successfully the government to resource us that there should be equivalent organisations in every state. Wonderful. So that there's a state mechanism mm -hmm. for dealing with these issues. So we've got one up in New South Wales. So I spent three, four years with... Um, partner organisations and stakeholders in New South Wales setting up an organisation that is now successfully running. So that's a great, great tick. And I'm now just there as a mentor advisor supporting mm -hmm. them. They're doing great work on their own. Queensland's just about to set up. Mm -hmm. And we have network structures in all the other states where people come together. So for me, that was about creating something that meant that in every state of Australia or Territory, you would have a unified voice of some kind or a mechanism that would talk to these issues because historically people had come to Victoria assuming there was a national voice and I was saying, no, there is no national voice. Right. There is no other national structure. So I had um, kind of tenuous links and contacts with people in different states who were interested but it was not actually anything that was at all um, coordinated. So really that, that's what we've spent. Well, really, we've spent, I've spent the last 10 years moving to, but, but the last five years we've been funded. So we spent five years mm. with no money through me convincing my board that we should invest in this because it's for the betterment of the issues we're working on and that we then, you know, you know found partners and used our own resources to employ someone even often, you know, just a few hours a week to try and build the mm. kind of structure we've got now. So what difference do you think a national body can make? Oh, huge, huge difference. For one, it means that I'm not the sole voice and seeing why it's not the sole voice. You know, even though it's really interesting because some people have said to me, you know, they've looked at the model that we've developed and said, well, why didn't you just create yourself into a national organisation and be the national body? But I said that's never sat with the vision or dream that we had about about CMI building mm -hmm. You know, I come from a very strong, you know, training and, and philosophical bent around community development being the only way to do things. You need to go to the community, help them own it. So we knew the niche of the state, there was a commitment. So mm -hmm. that's why we went that way, because we wanted the communities and advocates in those states to own the vision, but that CMY would always be there to provide expertise, share its knowledge, its resources. And we've, all, and we've always shared our mistakes and kind of gone, oh, we really stuff this up. It may work in your state, but this is our our reflection because mm -hmm. Victoria is very different to every other state mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. some of the structures and the political environment doesn't exist but Absolutely. but we've learnt some of that and kind of shared it and we mm -hmm. share the successes of what we do as well so I think again our role there has has been to be the leader mm -hmm. to kind of be the leader and show the way that then people need to create 
mechanisms that are in their own states because mm -hmm. if we don't have truly owned mechanisms locally, the national body's not going to work. Gotcha. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. So can we um, talk about um, a bit more about your experience at Harvard and yeah. what that means, what you've brought back to uh, organizational well-being here in this office? Yeah. Um, there were there were a couple of things that I learned, and one of the key things, what one of the key reasons why I wanted to go also was because I, I'm a founding CEO, and founding CEOs in Australia in the not-for-profit sector are a bit unusual. There are probably only half a dozen hmm. that I know that are still in in those roles, yeah. and a couple of them are in Victoria, which is really quite interesting too hmm. about where we started. Um, so I needed to deal, not deal with. I wanted to really reflect on, um, you know, being you know being fifty now. So you kind of go, well, what do you do? How do you hand the organisation over at some point? Not that I'm intending to go in the next year or two, but you know. Um, so I've been thinking about succession planning. The board's been thinking about succession planning because we've also just done a major. 2030 visioning exercise. Because of the changes that had occurred, particularly at the federal level around the not-for-profit sector, the, the um, move away from government funding niche specialist organisations like CMY to funding large NGOs to be what I would call a entry level in and then behind the front door, they work with a range of um, community, you know, groups of what you might call population groups, that that was the shift, that you found okay. big NGOs and then you work with dis people with disabilities, cold, whatever, yeah. that I had a few alarm bells and so the board going, well, what does that mean for an organisation like CMI? Yeah. Plus, Australia is much more culturally diverse than when we started, so we're going, do we need an organisation by CMI or mm -hmm. should we be winding ourselves up and doing something differently? So, you know, because we tend to go, and, I, and I'm a great Star Trek fan and stuff here, I always use the saying that we go where others fear the tree, which is we okay. need to ask those questions. Yeah, great. We need to ask, and the board were really going to ask it as well, going, mm -hmm. well, you know, do, you know, do we wind up, do we shrink, do we grow, do we stay the same? So we, halfway through our, sorry, I'm kind of wandering off, but trying to answer your questions. Fine. Fine. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, that we did this major kind of, you know, review of our, of our strategic plan and then held a thought leaders session with about 20 people that were a diverse range of people, what we would call thought leaders in Victoria, from a range of different backgrounds, some who knew us very well, some who didn't know us at all, and some who kind of knew the issues, just to get a picture. So from that, we have gathered some information about what some of the issues were. So that happened. I've been doing some succession planning. So therefore, when I got you know the opportunity, fortunately, to get this um, scholarship, I went over to Harvard. So I spent a fair bit of time myself because you go to Harvard wanting to answer questions. That's mm -hmm. the whole model. It's great in terms of you go and then you have a peer group that you work with over eight days where you problem solve your own issue Fantastic. as well as hear of case studies that the Harvard's, mm -hmm. you know, present to you. So, so, so for me, that was, you know, really powerful on two levels. One on the individual level about, you know, founding CEO and, you know, what I discovered in a place like the US, there's a whole lot of intensive writing, thinking, because founding CEO is very common because okay. their setup of not-for-profits is so different. And if you think about it, they don't have a welfare state like, yeah. the, like mm -hmm. the British system that Australia and Canada follow. Yeah. So it was really interesting that the, the Brits, Canadians and us, Australians, of which probably constituted maybe a third 
whilst we were there, felt a real click between ourselves because we realised how different the US experience was. Yeah. But it was good to sit in a room for a session and talk to other founding CEOs, of which some were, you know, entrepreneurs in South America who just started some business to someone who'd been in an organisation like me for 20 years talking about this whole thing, I think. So for me, it was a real trigger about, right, what am I, what am I putting into the organisation that means that the culture of the organisation remains the same because whether I like it or not, and sometimes I try and say that it's not, that very much the culture does sit with me. Mm. It comes, and we know the culture sits from the top. So you need to, you know, embed that in the organisation some way so that if the CEO goes, how does that happen? And I really um, try to, particularly more recently, have my presence internally less visible and try and encourage other senior staff and others to embed that. So that was the kind of stuff that I was already doing, but Harvard gave me a whole lot of tricks about how to do that because we did case studies around the whole CEO founding syndrome and what happened in an organisation when that wasn't allowed to happen. So that was really powerful for me on an individual level too. So can you tell me a little bit more about um, what it looks like on the ground in the organisation, um, you know, whether it's surveys or reporting back? Can you just give our listeners a bit of a picture of what that means? Yeah, look, um, um, I wanted to do a CEO conversation series for about 18 months because the organisation's gone through, in the last three years, probably at 25 or maybe 35% increase in staffing and we've had um, offices where they're expanded so we've become more regional. So even though we're kind of 80 staff, of which is probably 60, a lot of um, part-time casuals, that really did make me think about this whole issue of how do you maintain a healthy organisation when you're dispersed, leadership's dispersed. In some places, there's a real lack of senior leadership because of the structure we've got and the funding constraints we're under, mm -hmm. that I wanted to really go and meet with individual staff on my own to find out what people are feeling like. Because I just, because I had a sense that people were feeling a little bit, you know, were they feeling anxious? Or was it just me feeling out of touch because I've been out of business really for 18 months? Mm. And I think I probably came back with a latch up realising I'm, you know, um, I'm a really quite hands-on CEO. I don't think I intervene, I have to ask my managers, but I'm pretty much in terms of I allow a whole lot of um, flexibility, but I like to know what's going on because I have, I think, a really good sense of where there's issues. So I probably felt a, a little bit out of touch because I spent so much time out looking for resources, building relationships, stakeholders, and I spent time overseas. This was my way of touching base and wanting to know what was really going on. So for me, I thought I would feel the pulse of the organisation. And at the same time, because we were halfway through our strategic plan, I put to the board that we should really also do a climate survey. We've never really done one, and that an organisation of this size now, you can't really judge what's going on because there's too many staff. Mm -hmm. By about 30, 40 staff, it's really hard to know what's going on. Yeah. So we did the two exercises at the same time. We didn't intentionally do them at the same time, but my reflection is now it was a really good way to do it yeah. because it demonstrated to staff that the climate survey was going to be taken seriously. Mm, yeah. And what kind of results um, are you happy to share about? What? Oh, no, I am really happy to share them because I think that... Um, um, after I did the conversation series, I think that my gut instincts and the information intelligence I'd already gathered from other staff reaffirmed that, you know, the big issues for the organisation are about its internal capacity to respond to the demands. It's not about um, 
people struggling to understand our vision, to know that the work we're doing is valuable and that it's generally a good place to work. So for me, the most powerful message and the kind of two or three things I was looking for was one, would you recommend this organisation to others? It's always a really important question that you want people leaving here knowing that it's a good place to work and we got really high, close to 80%. So it was really, so for me, you know, that's, you know, that was a really important one. And the other one was also around um, looking at if some um, people um, felt good working in the organisation and we had like a, you know, over 90%, like percent which our consultant said was, you know, international best practice, which kind of freaked me out a bit, I must say, because I said, <laughs> well, are you sure you've really, you know, that it's that high? But, you know, her kind of reflection, I think our reflection was, that because of the um, exercise we'd been doing, that staff really felt like their views were being valued and the things that they were concerned about were not issues that were fundamentally, fundamentally challenging the, the premise of the organisation or our mm -hmm. core mission. Yeah. So for me, that was really kind of powerful message. So now the challenge as CEO, I now realise is how do you maintain that because... yeah. I really worry that it's going to be really easy to go down mm, than yeah. that because it was so high. So I was secretly really hoping it would be like around 80% so that there was a bit of need <laughs> to go up. So it's been a bit high. So my challenge now is to keep it at 90. Yeah, right. Well, yeah. interesting. Um, before we were talking about um, terminology with regard to the not-for-profit sector and shifting that to the being for purpose, um, what are your thoughts about that? Look, um, I kind of really like the term. Because even when I was at Harvard, we had a lot of conversations about not-for-profits seem to be, or that the not-for-profit sector, sorry, is viewed by the business sector and government as not really being good at running its own business. But what we discovered, and a lot of the Harvard research has discovered in some of the case studies we did, that actually not-for-profit organisations, you know, we are multi-million dollar businesses that run really efficiently and much more efficiently than a lot of for-profit businesses do. Interesting. So that was really quite interesting. Not to say that there isn't a whole lot of um, organisations that don't, but like their own business, but I think it's reframing that we are not these too big, don't know how to run an organisation, that it, and, that, and, that really, and that really not-for-profit didn't mean what we're doing did not have a purpose. So I kind of think for-purpose sits well with me, mm. but I need to get my head around what that means. Is it actually just a change? If, if we're changing the language, why are we changing the language and what does it mean? Mm, yeah, yeah, I wonder if um, there seems to be a drive for uh, the private sector to orient themselves around purpose. And so I wonder if if that's something that is going to go beyond this sector into yeah. you know, just rec a recognition that purpose is perhaps a, an important driver and, and can bring efficiencies. Yes, I think so, and I think for too long people have perceived that you know it's it's all about our sector, the community sector or not-for-profit sector, having to learn from business. Whereas what I'm very clearly discovering that a lot of businesses and the business community, the for-profit making organisations, are actually coming to us to learn about things like organisational health and well-being, and about. Wow. Um, you know, how to run complex organisations. Like I have a finance manager who's come from the profit sector to the not-for-profit who's come here going, oh my goodness, I never understood the complexity of relationships, funding that your organisation has, where in the profit sector you would have invoices in and out from the same source, whereas 
in these kind, mm-hmm. in, you know, in our organisations, they're not only complicated by government contracts, they're the range of them and the, and the stakeholder engagement skills you have to have mm-hmm. to make your business work. Fantastic. So um, the last question I have for you is um, what advice do you have for those who are wanting to um, express their leadership or put something out yeah. into the world or have a particular project, um, what, what would you say to, to give them a bit of a boost? Um, that's a really good question. I mean, clearly you're someone who has accomplished a lot. You've had, you know, mm. you know these big, hairy, audacious goals and you've achieved a lot. So, yeah, from, from your experience, what, what advice do you have? Um, there's a couple that I've struck when I've, you know, heard other people speak and um, which, you know, kind of all link to, um, if you say that there's something that you need to change to make the world a better place, as trite as that might sound at times that people kind of look at you, that often you need to be brave. You need to be really clear on your mission. And again, that's what Harvard was great about really saying. If, um, you need to be really clear that what you want to do doesn't already exist, mm. that it fills a gap and that there is a need for it. And that um, also one of the things I heard that really resonated with me, which was from Francis Frey, who's one of the leading lecturers at Harvard, was about you need the courage to be bad, which to me talks about, you know... I like it. Yeah, that's <laughs> right, which means you, you almost have to be bad at some things to be good at some. So I reflected on that about seeing mine and thought, you know, I think one of our successes has been that we have not tried to change every social policy that exists for refugee and migrant young people and their families in Victoria. We've clearly gone, there are a couple of things we want to focus on and we're going to focus on them really clearly. So I think that's what you need to do. You need to kind of go, yes, I want to, you know, if, if you're a leader who wants to be engaged in some social change, that you kind of go, where is it you want to go? Work out how you're going to get there. Who do you bring with you? And make sure that along the way, you're going to have to find that it's not going to be perfect and you're going to have to go, that's fine. You just keep going because if you don't, you're not going to get to the other end. And that you need to be really clear about saying that's okay because you need the courage to be bad at some things and say, well, you might be really good at this and you have to learn to say no. That's the other really important thing I've learned about CMI. Yeah. We, we have actually, and I hadn't really crystallised that, we've been really good at saying no because people come to you once you're good at what you do, what else I realise, people will come to you. That's where you want to get to after 20 years. And then you have to then be good to say, no, I don't want to do what you want me to tell you to do. I, I think we should do this. Do you want to come on this journey with me? If not, I'm not going there. Because that's what takes you off mission. And that then often is, is the downfall of good organisations who really go off purpose of what they want to do. Mm, wonderful. Thank you so much for coming Great. today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. What struck me in this conversation was the word reflect. It's clearly a theme for Carmel and is an indication of the type of leader she is and how she's taken the time to learn from how things are, to question why, and to find ways to effectively take the pulse of a growing organization. I enjoyed her learning about being a big dreamer and that historically that's who makes change happen. What a great problem to have, getting really good marks on the culture survey. And yeah, maintaining 90% is going to be a real challenge, especially as things change in the sector and things like moving away from being government funded. I love that she is reframing the notion that not-for-profits aren't good at running organizations. 
and that when you get good, people come to you and they want to learn from you and start to appreciate that just because you're not for profit doesn't mean you aren't, for example, efficient or adept at managing complexity. And lastly, I really like the notion of accepting that you're going to be bad at things to be good at others. And of course, the importance of learning to say no. Fantastic leadership traits demonstrated here. To find out more about CMY and YN, see the links in the show notes. And a special shout out to Edmi for her work on Mayan, the national body, and to everyone at CMY for the difference you make. What a great bunch of people, super talented and committed. Thanks for listening to Tall Poppy. Come and check out the website for more on leadership, engagement, and workplace culture. And to learn more about applying these traits to your own leadership, my book on human-centered leadership is a practical exploration of the journey toward being a human-centered leader. And it's currently seeking support to get published. It's at tathrastreet.com forward slash book. That's T-A-T-H-R-A-S-T-R-E-E-T dot com forward slash book. And to help your fellow listeners, leaving a review for Tall Poppy on iTunes or Stitcher is another great way that you can make a difference. Mm-hmm.